you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, as you're opening up there, uh, let me just say how grateful I am for our amazing music ministry and our amazing hospitality team and all the other staff and volunteers who come together to make our sanctuary, our church campus look so beautiful, to come together to lead us in worship so capably, come together to help give us a good delicious breakfast in the room so beautiful, just so many things, so many things that, uh, that come together uh, here on Easter Sunday. And I praise God for the amazing church we have and all the hard work uh, they put in, Woody and Lydia and Nathan and Becky and Gina and Chris, everyone working together in concert uh, to make sure that we have a wonderful Easter Sunday. So if you ever get the opportunity, thank, thank those folks. Thank our volunteers. Christy Irwin is, is, is uh, make sure that the breakfast goes perfectly in the mornings. And Joan Ray spends countless hours out in the prayer garden. And I'm going to get in trouble if I keep naming people now at this point. But you recognize, uh, they put me on the back screen for some reason. But uh, I guess I do something around here too. So that's why they put me on the, on the screen. You have your Bibles open there. Let's go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together as your people to celebrate the resurrection of your son today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday, I came across an article from the New York Times where opinion writer Nick Kristoff interviewed the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Kristoff asked her uh, whether or not she believed in a literal flesh and blood resurrection. Do you believe, he asked, in a literal flesh and blood resurrection? In other words, did Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, actually bodily raise from the dead? Here was her answer. Those who claim to know whether or not the resurrection happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Later in the interview, she goes on to say that if a faith is based only on the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it's a pretty flimsy faith, she said, because what then if they found Jesus' body? What would be of our faith then? Paul's answer And my answer is the same as Paul's, because it was Paul's answer, is that if we find the body, let's pack it up and take it to the house. There are better ways to spend our time. It's a beautiful day out there. There are all kinds of things we can go do if Jesus is dead. You see, there's a problem with the idea that this seminary president is presenting to the world. There's a huge problem with this idea, and I I take offense to this idea as a pastor. And the reason for that is because I go with y'all to funeral homes, graveyards, hospital bedsides. As a pastor, I go to cancer wards. As a pastor, I go to, to places where God's people are, where they suffer. You come to me in my study or I sit with you in your living room and we weep together over the state of the world or your life or a friend or a loved one. I've got a problem with this idea and the problem is that I watch the people I love suffer. And I promise you that if all God has done is send us a trite greeting card message, If God's done no better than Hallmark can do, the love that's in you cannot be crucified. I promise you, I wouldn't stay here. I wouldn't deceive you. I certainly wouldn't take a paycheck and pretend that that's enough. I I don't want a God. I have no desire. It means nothing to me to have a God who just whispers sweet nothings in the ears of mourning Sri Lankans this morning whose churches were bombed this very day, Easter Sunday. I don't want a God who deals in trite sentiments. I don't want a God who's nothing better than a fortune cookie, who tells us things might get better, things might not. I don't know. I'm in this with you, I guess. 
That is not the God of the Bible, and that is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want a God who acts. I want a God who does something. I want a God who's provided us not with just a symbol of love, but a God who's given us a living hope, a promise, a message from Himself that's not just a message, but action in the world that death will not have the final say for us because it did not have the final say for Jesus of Nazareth. The message of Easter is the message. The message of Easter is the message of a literal flesh and blood resurrection. The message of Easter is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and at one point His flesh lay dead in a tomb, and at another point His flesh was alive again, that His heart had stopped beating, that His lungs had stopped breathing, and that in the glorious morning of the first Easter, God raised Him from the dead. That heart began to beat again. Those lungs began to breathe again. Why? Should we believe in the resurrection? It's obviously not enough for me just to tell you what I think and what I believe. That's not sufficient. That's not sufficient. I don't even just do that for my own family, my own children. Just, well, I think it. you should too. That, that, you need more than that. And so this morning, I'll, I want to point you to three witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Three things, I think, that can help us, that can aid us in trusting and believing that the resurrection happened. Three witnesses to a literal flesh and blood resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing I want you to see. first thing I want you to see is the witness of the Bible. The witness of the Bible. The Scriptures teach us that Jesus raised from the dead. The Scriptures teach us that Jesus raised from the dead. The first thing we see here from Paul, verses 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, <coughs> in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The first thing we see here that Paul points us to as the, for the Scriptures as a witness to the resurrection is the power of the preached Word. There is power when the Word, when the Gospel is preached. What Paul is saying to these Corinthians is, you had no reason to believe except that God's Word is powerful. All throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he, he talks about how, how to the Greeks this is foolishness. And how Jews demand a sign. We, we see that in Herod. Herod wanted a sign. He, he was excited when Jesus was brought to him because he thought he was a, just a mere miracle worker. All throughout this, Paul talks about how the Corinthians had no natural reason whatsoever to believe. And, and we do. We, we do think this. I, I alluded to this last week, but it's worth repeating. We, we, we do think that there was just a resurrection happening every week in the ancient Near East. It's what Lewis called chronological snobbery. It's important for us to think about that. What we think is, because it's 2019, we've gotten smarter. Which is very obvious, right? You spend 10 minutes on the internet and you know that's not true. 
human progress is a myth. One, one time I was, on the, I was on the playground with my kids, and I smell something. I, I don't know that smell. That's cigarette smoke on the playground. And I think, okay, I'm at a crossroads here. My dad, this person's smoking a cigarette on a playground. We all know you don't need to smoke on a playground. And I turned around and said, yeah, I guess I'm going to just have to say something to this person. Then I looked around and realized there are five people smoking on the playground. <laughs> I said, well, I might can say something to one person, but I, I'm, I don't feel like this is uh, a place where I need to set a pulpit up and start preaching about smoking. It was at that moment I realized human progress is a myth. It's a myth. We know better, and we do it anyway, you know. Not just one person, five of us decide to do it. Human progress is a myth. We look back and we just think that everyone there just wanted to believe in resurrection. Somebody's raising from the dead all the time. You know, these people are so gullible. No, people knew how death works. People know what death means. Have you ever noticed in the Bible when somebody's family member or somebody's loved one dies, you ever notice what happens? People cry. You know why? Because they know death is final. They, they, they know that that's the case. People knew how death worked. In fact, you find Jesus' own followers incredulous at the idea that he might raise Lazarus from the dead. They wanted him to be there sooner so they could, he could save them. No, brothers and sisters, no one in Corinth, no one in, in the first century naturally believed in the resurrection of a man. Now, nobody woke up every day anticipating that. And yet what Paul is saying is thousands and thousands and thousands, churches, hundreds of churches emerged during this time. Why? Because of the power of the preached word. Something happened in the first century to create this explosion of Christianity. But we also learn that Christ died and that Christ was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died, verses 3 and 4, verse 3, with, in accordance with the Scriptures. This afternoon, I would encourage you. It would be a good thing to do on Easter Sunday if you've got time. Maybe the night before you go to bed. Read Psalm 22 and read Isaiah 53. Just go read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and you can begin to see the way that the Old Testament prophets, the Spirit was working through them to predict that the Christ would suffer. To predict the sufferings of of Jesus. Jesus died in accordance with the Scriptures, but we also recognize that Christ was raised up in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's just focus in for just a moment on one verse, two verses from the Old Testament. Paul quotes these verses in Acts 13.35 when he's preaching. He quotes David in the 16th Psalm. Listen to me uh, read here Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. For you will not, David the psalmist writes, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. You will not leave me dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul picks these verses up and he makes it clear. He, he, he makes it clear that this is a prediction of the fact that the Holy One, Jesus, would not undergo decay or corruption. That he wouldn't be in the grave long enough to rise. And Paul uses this verse to great effect as he's preaching to his brethren to make sure it's clear to them that David who wrote this underwent decay. 
We we can find the grave of David, Paul says, but there is no grave for Jesus. In other words, the point Paul is making here is that the witness of the Old Testament is consistent with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise stated, another way to put this is Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Now, some might say that, a skeptic might say, you know, that's just self-fulfilled prophecy. They sort of designed this in such a way that it looked like he fulfilled prophecy. However, what you've got to remember is Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament in ways nobody expected. If, you, if you're a careful student of the Gospels, if you'll give the Gospels an honest read, you'll recognize over and over and over again, none of the disciples thought Jesus was going to die and raise again. They, they, they thought Jesus was going to win immediately. So, so it'd be foolish to, to say that this is self-fulfilling prophecy when if you're going to create a myth, there's a bunch better one to create. One that's a lot easier for people to accept. The skeptic might say, I don't trust the Bible. I, I don't trust the scriptures. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about this. I'm listening to this online or I came on Easter because I kind of want to know why I should believe in the resurrection. The first thing you do is turn me off by talking about the witness of the Bible. So don't use the Bible to help prove the resurrection. Here's the challenge for me, though. My my response to that is this. This is exactly one of the reasons why I believe the Bible's true. In other words, I understand if I I were to say, well, the Bible says the resurrection happened, and therefore you ought to believe it. I understand that's kind of arm-twisting, right? But but here, this is something different. What, What I'm arguing here is that the Bible's internal witness concerning itself, what the Scriptures teach about the Scriptures, hinges on the resurrection. And so I want you to give God a chance to make His own arguments. I I want you to give God a chance to demonstrate the veracity of His own Word rooted in and based around the truth of the resurrection. Jesus Christ is alive. And so the first witness that points us to the reality of the resurrection, one reason I think you ought to believe in the resurrection is the witness of the Bible. But the second is this. The second is this, the witness of eyewitnesses. The witness of eyewitnesses. Now, some would have us believe that all of the Bible, all of our trust and faith in Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, is a result of what somebody might call blind faith. That the Bible's just, all it encourages is blind faith. Faith. And, and that's a, a fallacious argument. That's not a true argument at all. I, I don't think that you ought to have blind faith. I think you have, ought to have faith that's based on evidence. But faith is based on something true. Faith, faith is rooted in something you know and believe. And so I want you to see here that the Bible goes to great lengths to demonstrate evidence that the resurrection really happened. Paul is doing something amazing here. He's giving a list of people who saw Jesus alive. Now, for some of us, okay, whatever. But if you're someone who's a skeptic, how many many snake oil salesmen are going to send you out and say, yeah, go out and find anybody you can find that was there and talk to them about it? Now, they might have a very narrow, very narrow list of references, right? But besides that, they don't want you to really investigate the claims. But what, is, what does Paul say here in 
verses 5 and following, he says that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So 500 people at once he appeared to. So he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, the brother, his own brother, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul's listing at least 500 people here who have seen Jesus alive. And this gives the skeptic who's reading 1 Corinthians in the first century, it gives them the opportunity to go figure this out themselves. This is not a naturally gullible sort of society. It gives people the opportunity. And we, and we don't have counter-arguments from that period of time refuting this reality. Furthermore, Every gospel writer lists women as the first ones who saw that the resurrection had happened. Tim Keller notes that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection being women are something no one would ever plan to do. In fact, during this era, unfortunately, women's testimony wasn't even counted in the courtroom. And so over and over and over again, the Bible demonstrates that there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. This was something that people saw happen. This is something that people were witnesses to. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to reject any notion, reject any idea that this was something that people could have simply made up. Reject the notion that this is something that people could have simply made up. Now, there's all kinds of theories on why the disciples would have made this up. They wanted power and control. Have y'all ever noticed the kind of power and control that the apostles have in the book of Acts? Anybody notice what happens? Yeah, a lot of times they're getting thrown in jail. Sometimes they're getting beat. (laughs) They're being ridiculed. Paul says he's cut off from his countrymen. That's not the kind of power and control we want. In fact, going back and saying that the apostles invented this because they wanted power and control would be about like saying George Washington wanted to be president because he wanted to ride in a sweet motorcade. Certainly there are leaders in the church over history who have gotten power and control by using God's name in a poor way. That's certainly not what the apostles did. And if they did, it was the worst plan ever conceived. Because it got basically all of them either killed or exiled. Here's the thing we need to recognize and realize. Christianity had a very public beginning. Almost all the world religions, especially the ones that claim to have heard from God, God speaks in private. God speaks behind closed doors. God speaks in a very narrow way. This is something that happened for all the people in the world to see. This is something that happened very publicly. Jesus Christ was dead, and then he appeared publicly. He appeared publicly for people to see him. God has made plain and clear that Jesus is alive through the resurrection. I hope and pray that the witness of eyewitnesses will help you see that the resurrection is true. But Finally, finally we see the witness of the church, the witness of the church, 
Look with me in verses 14 and following. Beginning verse 12, actually. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, someone in Corinth was arguing that there wasn't going to be a great resurrection day, that Jesus was the only one who raised from the dead. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What's Paul saying? My whole ministry, the whole ministry of the apostles, the preaching ministry that we are carrying out is useless if there is no resurrection. Now, I want to make this really clear because I, I really think that this argument that it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus physically raised from the dead, what really matters is whether or not we trust that he did or whether or not the apostles believed it and whether or not we can have this great example of love that someone died for us. I, I believe it's one of the most deadly thoughts in the world. Countless churches and denominations have been gutted by that thought. first person to popularize that thought was a guy in the 1700s named Friedrich Schleiermacher. And from that point forward, when people said the resurrection doesn't really matter, it, it doesn't really matter if it's true or not, from Schleiermacher forward, we've recognized that it kills Christianity to say that it doesn't matter whether Jesus really raised from the dead or not. It's exactly, it's precisely the point that Paul is making, that our preaching is in vain. There's no reason for us to keep preaching if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. I want to emphasize this, folks. I have burned the ships in the harbor on the resurrection. If Jesus is alive, then everything belongs to Him. And the Bible must be true because Jesus taught that the Bible was true if He's raised from the dead. If He's not, He was either lying or crazy. But those are our options. Paul makes another point, though, in verse 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. What Paul's saying here is we're risking blasphemy. We're, we're risking blasphemy if Christ is not raised. What else does he demonstrate here? I love verses 16 through 19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, listen to this very carefully. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's making it so clear. So abundantly clear that his whole life hinges on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That if Christ is to be hoped in in the future, if we can hope for a future resurrection, if we trust that God is able to raise bodies from the dead and that when we look at Jesus we can have hope and trust that the same thing will happen to us, that we'll be raised from the dead. We have hope beyond this life. And so we can do, as Martin Luther said, and let good and kindred go this mortal life also. That's precisely what Paul did. And that's precisely what he was admonishing his followers and Christ's followers to do, to risk all for the glory of Christ. 
But Paul says, if Jesus is dead, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. We've given up everything for a hoax, for a lie. Think about this for a moment. Take this thought and think about the early church. Think about the transformation that happened in the lives of those that we read about in the book of Acts, those who are characters, so to speak, in the early church. Think about the transformation of Peter. The transformation of Peter, who went from wanting to be a freedom fighter to being willing to be a shepherd of God's sheep. Think think about the life of Matthew, tax collector. He's transformed by the grace of Jesus. Think about the lives of these very Corinthians to whom Paul is writing. People that used to participate in all sorts of unspeakable pagan sinful practices and now who now are trusting and following Jesus Christ. Think about the life of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, who traveled around, as he alludes to here, persecuting the church. Paul was a terrorist who went around dragging people out of their homes, stoning them to death, taking their property, persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Paul, who now says, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, Paul makes it so clear that a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential Christianity. And over and over and over again, if we stop and we think logically out from the milieu that existed in the first century and the sort of religious and philosophical life that surrounded the gospel in the first century, the fact that it went forth so powerfully, the fact that it transformed the lives of the disciples so powerfully, the fact that it transformed lives like Paul so powerfully, the bottom line is something had to have happened. And it's supremely insulting For us here in the 21st century, where people are smarter than they've ever been, to look back on people in the first who said, this is why my life was transformed, and look back at them and say, well, it must have been something else besides what they said. I'm sure they thought, you know, Paul, such such an intellectual lightweight. Paul, not like me, Paul must have thought that he saw the risen Christ, but in reality, he was just projecting his hatred psychologically back on himself and was transformed thereby. You know, it's ridiculous for us to look back and to think that we know people in the first century better than they knew themselves. But here's the reality. Paul is making clear that the resurrection of Jesus is essential to Christianity. And it was offensive then, and it is offensive now. But it's what we've staked our lives on. Something happened to impact people in the first century to make them willing to die for this belief. What's a bigger stretch? What's a bigger stretch? That they made up a lie that they were willing to die for? Or... Is it possible that Jesus Christ really did raise from the dead? You see, the good news this morning is that the ultimate love in our lives is not in our lives, 
but outside our lives. Aren't you glad you're not responsible for the love in the world? I am. I don't always love perfectly. You see, the good news is that the ultimate love is not a concept, is not a symbol, but he has a name. And his name is Jesus. He was a person who lived and who died in accordance with the Scriptures. And there's good news that love himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only has a name, but he has a body. In his hands, in his feet, in his side, have scars. And those scars are a picture of what he has done for us. Love has a name, and love has a body, and love has scars, and love has a heart that beats now and that beats forevermore. Love, brothers and sisters, ultimate love, the love of God that came down from heaven, the light that is the light of the world, the light that is the light of men. Love is literally, physically, flesh and blood resurrected. Jesus is alive, and because of that fact, so are we. So are we. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, my hope and my prayer is that you would see why you should believe in the resurrection. I don't believe, I reject that it's unreasonable to believe that Jesus raised from the dead. Now, you've not heard a slam dunk this morning. There's probably, for some of you, if you are a skeptic, if you've heard this message, there's still more work to be done, more to think through. But perhaps, but perhaps, you're ready today to put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. This altar is open for you today. I'd love to pray with you and talk to you about what it means for you to repent of your sins, turn from your sins and repentance, and turn to God faith through Jesus Christ. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I've just been struggling with some of these things more than I wish I had. This altar is open for you today to pray. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you this morning about what it means for you to be a member here in First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that first Easter morning, and we thank you for the fact that from that point forward, every day is Easter. Every day we walk in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, today, would you grant us faith? Would you grant us repentance? Would you tr grant us trust in what Jesus has done for us? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.